Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, and that is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this on Monday, April 15th, 2019, which means we really should be doing our taxes. But Aaron and I are here sharing the latest Marvel-related news, which... By the way, we, we kind of have to start on a sad note here, Aaron. Did you see about how Endgame is is actually really for real going to be the very last Stan Lee cameo? Yeah, and I mean, we were actually expecting it to be. I mean, come on, it has to end sometime. The guy has passed away, so there weren't that many more uh, opportunities to for him to be utilized. So I think this was the last thing that they filmed, so... Yeah, if this is it, this is this is our last hurrah for Stan. Our last salute, if you will. Didn't we hear something about Far From Home maybe having one? I do not recall. I thought that they had discussed the possibility of it, but I don't know if they ever actually had gotten around to filming it because <laughs> they were filming stuff in, in batches where they would get like two or three cameos all in one sitting. Mm-hmm. And I think that this was the last batch that they mm-hmm. had filmed ahead of time. And then he was ill, and so uh, Captain Marvel, he just couldn't do the the voice work for. But did they actually film that before he was sick? I don't know. In fact, I know that Endgame and Infinity Wars were basically shot as one big giant film. So right. Stan, in theory, shot both cameos at the same time. So I guess they won't be in a... The same situation that I think we talked about with Captain Marvel, that they had to go out and find audio to sort of strengthen, artificially strengthen his voice. But Joe Russo had an interesting comment about this that I have to say, I think it's kind of astonishing that Stan's appearance in Endgame would be his very last cameo. It's just kind of mind boggling that he made it all the way through to the end of this 22 picture run. So I guess in a way, given this is where the Infinity Saga ends. Yeah, it seems like an appropriate place for that to happen. Yeah, okay. So it's appropriate. Just I'll be kind of intrigued to find out whether or not there were any more in the can and whether this was a decision made at the Kevin Feige level that, you know, let's have Stan go out with this film. So speaking of Kevin Feige, April 11th, uh, we had the big... Disney Investor Day, where they walked people through the whole Disney Plus, their subscription streaming service. So Kevin took the stage and talked about the seven different things that Marvel is prepping for Disney Plus. There's the two documentary series, and a lot of the stuff, Aaron, we've already talked about, like the Scarlet Witch and Vision project. Uh, I think we reported on that first in September of last year, but you see a significance in the name of the show? Well, when Kevin mentioned it on stage, he said WandaVision. Mm-hmm. And I thought he had mistakenly just run the two characters' names together. Mm-hmm. But when you see it in print, there is no space between the word Wanda and Vision. It's WandaVision. Mm-hmm. And in the comic books, Scarlet Witch and Vision are romantically entangled throughout many of those stories for many years. And so it seems like they are now together, like they're just a unit, a one thing. It's kind of like uh, Kimye when they Mm do, you know, Kim Kardashian and Kanye, when you mash two celebrity names together. So now it's just one division. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to see finally the 
romance come from page to screen, but I still have no idea what the overall arc of the story will be. I'm very excited to find out more about it outside of it's just Wanda and Vision together on mm-hmm. uh, adventures and escapades. I want to I want to know more about where they're going to go with their stories. Now, speaking of two people being mashed together, we have the also the the Falcon and the Winter Soldier uh, limited series, which yeah. we we talked about last October and. If this is actually the name of the show, The Falcon and Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. I hear that name and I immediately think of Robert Lindsay's book, The Falcon and the Snowman. Yeah, right. I think they made the, what is it, that Tim Hutton, Sean Penn movie back in 85. But mm-hmm. what are your hopes for this show? Well, it could go a couple of different ways because in previous MCU moments, both Winter Soldier and Falcon have not really gotten along all that well. So they could play it kind of like 48 Hours where Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy don't get along throughout the mm-hmm. whole thing, but they're forced together to solve a mystery or something. You know, they could go that way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they've softened up post-snap. Mm-hmm. When they come back, they'll they'll kind of embrace one another and it will be like a buddy cop team up where they get along a bit more. I'm kind of hoping that they still don't quite get along and they ruffle each other's feathers. No pun intended for Falcon, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, That's pun good. intended. That's good. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that they don't get along because I find a lot of, of fun and humor to be mined out of that. Um, not everybody in the MCU. Actually, some of the best stories in the MCU are when the heroes are not getting along with one another and they do differ in opinion. There's always fun and conflict between your heroes, I think. I agree. I agree. And of course, there is the Loki limited series that Tom Hiddleston himself teased about with his November 2018 tweet of Loki, more stories to tell, more mischief to make, more to come. They didn't get into too many details here, but it does, the the conceit, as I understand it, is basically Loki crosses the expanse of time and is there at key moments in, in humanity's history. And I, it's like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's well, like, I don't know if I would say that he crosses time in any sort of way. Remember, he's incredibly old. This is true. So I'm I'm kind of thinking that when they were talking about him showing up at key moments in history, it's just a Wednesday for Loki. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He's not really going there to, you know, I'm going to go mess with those humans because I got a time machine. It's more like, hey, man, I've been around sitting on this rock in Asgard for the last thousand years. I need some entertainment. What's happening on Earth? And every once in a while, he just kind of pops in and checks on us. And Da Vinci's about to create some incredible invention. And he manipulates Da Vinci in some way, and he ends up creating something tragic or or much different than what we remember as, you know, the Vitruvian Man or or whatever. Okay. I know. I kind of like that. That sort of differentiates the concept from Doctor Who, which seemed very reminiscent of... Anyway, the other big news coming out of the Marvel portion was the Hawkeye show with Jeremy Renner. Same thing. It's a limited series. The conceit this time around is that Clint Barton is looking to pass the torch to Kate Bishop, who I guess is a a member of the Young Avengers. And I guess at some point in the Marvel comic chronology, Kate takes up the Hawkeye mantle after Barton decides to step back and sort of hang up the whole saving humanity from total destruction gig, which from the way we've been seeing Clint portrayed in the Endgame trailers, this really does sort of dovetail nicely into 
what they seem to be doing there. Are you talking about when he's messing with the swords and whatnot as Ronan, the Ronan yeah, character? Yeah, I mean, a really, really dark guy. Yeah, he took over that mantle in uh, the comic books. Ronan mm-hmm. was a different character entirely, and then Hawkeye ended up becoming Ronan. And here's the thing. Like, in mm-hmm. comic books, you can't really care because it's just stories. And in movies, it's got to be much the same way. You just got to sit back and just take in the story. But, I mean... This guy has been training with the bow and arrow his entire, entire, entire life. Mm-hmm. And after the world ends, he goes, nah, screw this. I'm going to swords. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, and now he's messing with swords all of a sudden as a, the Ronin, the master. And then maybe he'll go back to his bows and arrows or whatever. But it was just like, come on, man, you got a skill. Use it. You don't have to switch now. It's okay. Interesting. Observation. <laughs> okay. Okay. As of right now, there's no word out there yet about who they're looking to cast for Kate Bishop. but. What is certain is Disney Plus goes live on November 12th. Though you mentioned on the last podcast you were very excited about the Marvel What If show, which I guess oh, yeah. riffs, is going to riff on a, a line of Marvel comics that you really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Did you see what they've decided to select for the, for the premiere episode, though? Yeah, yeah, I did. I think it's a wonderful storyline, and I can't wait till they do it. Go ahead and explain. The conceit of the first episode here is, well, what would have happened if instead of Steve Rogers taking that super soldier serum, it was Peggy Carter who got dosed instead? And best part of this, again, this is being done by Marvel Television Animation, but they actually got Haley Atwell, uh, who played uh, Peggy Carter starting in Captain America, the first Avenger back in July of 2011 then went on to do both seasons of ABC's uh, Agent Carter limited series, but she's coming back. She's doing the episode. Now, I believe also in that storyline, it wasn't just her getting the serum. It was that Steve stays skinny, but Mm. Stark's father ends up building a Iron Man suit, like almost steampunk, an old 60s style Mm -hmm. suit of armor that is motorized so that Steve can join her on the battles in his weaker form, the suit's what gives him the power. So it's like a precursor to Iron Man in that sort of weird what-if way that they do. Mm-hmm. And, and so they yeah, kind of do a, a little team-up together still, just in a completely weird, different way. I, it sounds like a lot of fun. It does. Wow. Okay, uh, uh, before we close out talking about the Marvel side of Disney+, Plus, I wanted to share what Kevin said as part of the presentation. And, and I think... Early on, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. tried to sort of stay plugged into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I want to say on the heels of the Thor, the Dark World episode, they tried to sort of link up at that point. But over time, it just became impossible, so they seemed to stop doing that. But Kevin says that what they're doing, these things are being produced for Disney+. Plus. They aren't being produced by Marvel Television. They are being produced by Marvel Studios. And these shows will be on the same level of quality you've come to expect from Marvel Studios. These will be both new and continuing stories, and one of the things we're most excited about is that these will be major storylines set in the MCU, with ramifications that will be felt both through the other Disney Plus series we're producing and our features on the big screen. So I love that the stakes have been ratcheted up here. I guess we have to see if they actually deliver the goods. Well, is it going to be this continuous trail of WandaVision intersects their story with Falcon and Winter Soldier, who then intersect with Hawkeye, and you have to watch all of them to get all the little Easter eggs dropped in along the way? Or 
can they have an individual series just for themselves for a minute? You know, I don't know. When you think back to what was just done on Netflix, how we had Jessica Jones teaming up with Daredevil, teaming up with Iron Fist and Luke Cage, but that was always part of sort of the Hell's Kitchen uh, world of Marvel, right? Yeah, the Defenders. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. I mean, we've already seen Wanda, Vision, Falcon, Winter Soldier, Hawkeye all team up because mm-hmm. we've had Avengers movies. So, yeah. I mean, that's not a new thing. Mm-hmm. The new thing is splitting them apart and giving them individual teams. And that's what I'm excited about. And I, I mean, I'm always okay when they connect back to the bigger picture. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But what I was talking about on previous episodes, the entry level bar is set so incredibly high mm-hmm. that I really don't want new viewers to have to do 10 years of cinema history of the MCU to watch new shows. This should be a, an entry point where people who don't know the characters get to learn them for the first time as if they've never met them before. And then once they get hooked on the characters, they go, oh, really? There's 10 years of movies with these characters? I have to go back and watch the whole set now. Just this past weekend, Game of Thrones came back and... They were doing a free preview event on HBO. And I have to tell you, Aaron, that, it, you know, I, I remember talking with um, uh, my friend Max Schilling, who had read the books and loved them and was thrilled that HBO was taking on this challenge. And the thing of it is, is that for seven seasons, I've sat outside of the show. And this would have been the weekend to climb on board because it's the last season and all of this excitement and that sort of thing. And the very thing you're talking about is like, oh, that looks like a lot of work. And I hear the it show is. is wonderful, but that looks like a lot of work. And I think I'm still, I'm going to sit outside. Yeah. So, and I hope that's, that's not the case with folks in regard to the Marvel stuff that they're going to do for Disney Plus. But you're right. It would be a little daunting to... I got to watch 22 movies before I understand what's going on here. It's like, who's got that time? I mean, it'd always be great, just like uh, DC does with Arrow and Flash and Supergirl, mm. to have a crossover mm-hmm. where a couple of episodes, you know, characters show up. I'm all for that. That's totally fine. I just don't want it to be where someone who isn't completely down with the entire history of the MCU to have to try and catch up. They should they should just try and make it a very clean start of, if you know their history, fine. If you don't, no problem. This is a perfect couple episodes, and, the, and one and two are a great primer to get you up to speed, and then we'll just carry on with a great story. And speaking of carrying on, Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is coming back. In fact, coming out of WonderCon last month, the panel that the Marvel Television staged there, we now know that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 6 starts on Friday, May 10th. In fact, they've got it in the 8 p.m. time slot, which is kind of the family hour. 13 episodes total for Season 6. And it turns out, remember when we'd heard, you know, got that news of the surprise renewal, not just for Season 6 and Season 7, but they actually shot Season 6 and Season 7 back-to-back a total of 26 episodes oh good to save money while the the ratings for the actual terrestrial television version of marvel agents of shield haven't been great i want to say last season it was uh, 138 out of i don't know how many programs are showed on on television at at, at this time but it's one of ABC's top in-demand shows. In fact, I was kind of startled by this stat. Marvel's Agents Shield actually gets 
downloaded more or got downloaded more than any of the Netflix uh, Marvel series we were just talking about. Yeah, that's why the 8 o'clock time slot doesn't make any difference at all. They could bury it at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning if they wanted to because the viewership, I mean, the, the reason it was canceled initially was, well, we're not getting an, any network viewership. And then the reason it was immediately brought back was, well, dang, it sure does have a huge amount of downloads on our streaming service. So they did see that there was a demand for it. They just weren't initially looking in the right place. And mm -hmm. I've always been one of those people. I can't remember. I think it was season two was the last time I saw agents of shield aired live on network TV. Mm -hmm. Anytime after that, I've watched it at my leisure via some streaming device or service. Hmm. So I, yeah, I've, I'm been disconnected to the, the scheduled programming for a very long time now. And the whole concept of, you know, it comes out at what time on what day mm -hmm. hasn't occurred to me in many years. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit, I slide back and forth between DVRing stuff and, and trying to catch it when it's, it's on the schedule. Like, as a child of the 60s, it's kind of burned into me. Getting back to episode one dropping on ABC uh, on May 10th, this episode is actually directed by Clark Gregg, who uh, plays Agent Coulson on the show. And when he was asked at WonderCon, what's this episode going to be like? Uh, he said, it's big and loud and badass, which Aaron, I'm hoping somebody actually says about me at some point in my life. So on one of our recent Marvelous podcasts, you asked what seemed like a simple question, which was, has the Walt Disney Company actually gotten back yet the $4.2 billion that it paid for Marvel Entertainment back in August of 2009. And I have spent weeks researching this. I have made <laughs> dozens of phone calls. And I have an answer to your question, sort of, which we'll discuss once we get back from this commercial. Before we get started here, I want to give our listeners a quick update on how Captain Marvel is doing at the box office. And Shazam has taken a little wind out of Carol Danvers' sales. That Warner Brothers release was number one at the box office for the second weekend in a row. Domestic ticket sales for this DC comics-based film uh, currently sit at $95 million, which means in a day or two, Shazam will blow through the $100 million domestic barrier. When you factor in the 160 some odd million tickets that have been sold internationally for this Zachary Levi movie, that's a worldwide gross a north of a quarter of a billion dollars, which is not too shabby. I mean, if the male Captain Marvel wants to catch up to the female Captain Marvel, he's going to have to do four times that business because right now, Marvel's Captain Marvel movie has sold. One billion sixty-four million dollars worth of tickets since it was released to theaters back in March of this year. And when you consider that this Anna Bowden Ryan Fleck film only supposedly cost one hundred and fifty-two million dollars to make, well, that means Captain Marvel has definitely made a return on the investment that the Walt Disney Company made on on this Marvel production, right? It's got to have turned a profit, right, Aaron? Not necessarily. Yeah, that's the thing. I've been pestering friends who work on the accounting side of the Walt Disney Company uh, in regard to your question. 
This is where we start to get both specific stuff and then big generalities about how Hollywood does business. And the hard reality is that Hollywood handles its books in a very convoluted manner. Sometimes what you think of as a hard line, you know, that, that point where a film crosses over into profit, can slip and slide around a lot. And a movie that you'd think has been in the black for years can still be lingering in the red. Let's just focus in on the past three Marvel movies. Marvel's uh, Avengers Infinity Wars last summer took in a billion dollars, $2 billion worth of ticket sales worldwide. Black Panther came out winter of 2018. It went on to sell $1.3 billion worth of tickets. And as we were just mentioning, Captain Marvel at this point, $1.06 billion worth of tickets worldwide. So right there, all by itself, that's $4.4 billion. So that should have covered the Marvel deal, right? There you go. In effect, they're $200 million to the good, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's just three movies out of the 22, uh, 22 film Infinity War Saga. So how much does movies cost to make? It's been reported that Infinity Wars cost Marvel Studios $300 million to make. Likewise, Black Panther, that was $200 million, and Captain Marvel was a relatively affordable $152 million. Round it down a little bit, we've got $650 million that was spent outright to make these movies. Now, we have to factor in the movie studios, yes, they put up the money to make the movie, but they have to have then their distribution partners. They have to have the exhibitors and they have to split the cost of ticket sales with the exhibitors. And now these days, if you have a really, really, really eagerly anticipated high profile film and you're a studio like Disney, you can actually demand 65% of what a ticket sells for. But that still means that 35% of that has to go back to the exhibitors. So in the case of the $4.4 billion we were just talking about for Infinity Wars, Black Panther and Captain Marvel, that means that 35% translates into $1.54 billion that has to go back to theater owners. So if you take the $650 million that it actually cost Disney to make these three Marvel movies, coupled with the, the $1.54 billion that the studio had to hand back to exhibitors for their cut of ticket sales, that's $2.2 billion. I mean, literally, we have taken that $4.4 billion and cleaved it in half, and we're just getting started here. <laughs> Let's see. I'm sure that Robert Downey Jr. has a little slice, a little percentage on the side. Uh... I almost went down that rabbit hole as part of this story, because <laughs> oh remember... They got basically Downey back in 2008 for pocket change, mm-hmm. whereas more recently, I want to say Downey renegotiated his deal to, I think he was getting $70 million just to agree to, to sort of extend his contract. If you think about things like Infinity Wars or Endgame, again, he doesn't carry the whole movie. He's part of an ensemble, but he's getting $70 million for ensemble work. I hear it takes $5 million just to get him to take his sunglasses off. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, of course, one of the places that that, that Robert would be taking his sunglasses off 
is at promotional events. And this is where we get to talk about P&A, which in industry spiel is the cost that a film spends on prints and advertising. And the actual cost of advertising, it's not cheap, Aaron, to launch a, a blockbuster globally. I mean, for example, Infinity War supposedly spent last year $175 million on global promotion. Black Panther, somewhat less, uh, $150 million. And Captain Marvel, largely because it was Marvel Studios' first film that they built around a female hero, they bumped up the price a little bit from Black Panther. So they spent $160 million. So again, you lump all those together, that's almost a half billion dollars just in promotion. If we subtract that from our $2.2 billion uh, figure we talked about earlier, I mean, we're now down to $1.7 billion. So divided three ways, that's $565 million per movie. And now we have to talk about things like operational overhead. I mean... Now, hold on, hold on, Jim. I just want to forewarn people right now. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking that this is going to end with us handing out a hat, asking mm. for an account number so we can donate money to Disney to stay aloft. <laughs> That's where this is going. No, I'm just kidding. No, Go no, ahead. No, I'm, no, I'm no. sorry. Just, I'm just playing. But when you do things like you have to factor in uh, renting the, sh the soundstage space, which Infinity Wars and Black Panther were primarily shot in and around Atlanta. So that meant grabbing sound stages at Pinewood Studios. Also, Tyler Perry's outfit. His uh, studio complex, they actually shot a good chunk of Black Panther there, which I, I thought was kind of cool. But I won't be surprised that if in the very near future, Disney invested in some real estate somewhere to build another studio, like huge, massive indoor set locations, because mm -hmm. if they've got Fox, they've got Star Wars, they've got Marvel, they've got Disney pictures, they need a place to film regularly. And it would almost make sense that they start cleaving off a chunk of land somewhere where they can just send all of their work and shuttle them in and out like cattle mm -hmm. to, you know, churn out movies. Disney, over the past 10 years or so, has been pouring a lot of dough into its Golden Oaks facility. This is something that Walt bought back in the late 50s, early 60s, and they would shoot a lot of the Western-based stuff this is right still in Southern California, but it's, it's, you know, has this lovely rural quality to it. But, and speaking of California, uh, you know, that, that Captain Marvel wound up primarily being shot in California, but that was largely because the California State Film Office offered Marvel a, an over $20 million tax credit if they shot back in California. You also have to understand that, again, we, when we talked about the split that uh, Disney had with exhibitors, that's only now on the backs of how successful Avengers was and Age of Ultron. And where if we, we look back just eight years to like, for example, when, when Thor and Captain America, the first Avenger both came out, the overall production cost, the profit ratio that Disney was dealing with at that point was so much lower, you know, so much tighter Mm -hmm. It's important here to recognize that if you think about it, Disney really did take a big roll of the dice when it came to acquiring Marvel for $4.2 because at that point, they didn't know that the Avengers was actually going to pay off. 
Kevin Feige talking about this interconnected series of superhero films and how audiences would come back to eventually hear this epic tale. And this could have very easily ended up like the Universal Monsters debacle yeah. where like they yeah. come out with hey to uh robert downey jr's playing tony stark and iron man one and it doesn't do the money that they want and then all of a sudden it's like some other actor is playing him in part two and it does even worse and it, you know they keep throwing stuff up on the screen and it just doesn't gel for whatever reason and it could have ended up a big sloppy mess and for whatever reason all the actors uh, with the exception of the incredible hulk and you know mm -hmm. that one exception pretty much all of the actors made it all the way through mm -hmm. the entire thing which i mean that's pretty darn epic i mean you compare it to like a bond series which has been going on for decades but this mm -hmm. is the first really continuous story that has taken 10 years to develop over all the many different characters and plot lines to be summed up in this way it's really kind of a history breaking moment for cinema absolutely and in fact it, it's so funny you bring up the Universal Dark Universe films, because again, just this past weekend, HBO, free preview weekend, what are they running? Tom Cruise's Mummy, which I never saw in theaters. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch this. And it's this horror movie that's trying to be kind of like Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean movies, where it, it's scary, but not too scary. And it's like, you understand you're a horror film, right? My biggest gripe was it was supposed to be a mummy movie that ended up turning into a Tom Cruise movie. And I yes. was like, the mummy yeah. is great. Let yeah. her do her thing. Mm -hmm. Because when she was present, it was pretty awesome. The rest of the time, it was a Tom Cruise movie. And I was just like, come on, get back to the good stuff. Well, and that's the thing is that, that I want to say the organization that hunts monster prodigium, I forget what the name was, but they had the glue supposedly for the entire series was Russell Crowe's character, where he was right. playing Jekyll. Dr. Henry Jekyll, who at least twice during the film, he's like, excuse me, I know I'm, I'm doing exposition, but I must now inject serum or I've become a monster. And in this case, Dr. Jekyll, it looked like he'd gotten a bad sunburn when he became Hyde. It was, <laughs> it was a very strange choice for the transformation, and especially on the heels of this same weekend, they were running Van Helsing. Here was Universal trying to launch this whole series of films that would bring back their monsters. And and this is Stephen Summers, who had done all of their work on the original Mummy series, or excuse me, the, the Mummy, original Mummy reboot series mm -hmm. with uh, Brendan Fraser. And when you look at this movie, it, you know, Van Helsing is like somebody, you know, just how much whipped cream would you like in your Sunday? Would you like more? Would you like more? <laughs> would you like more? It's so excessive. So many effects, so many transformations that it just kind of beats you into submission. And Here's the one thing. I think that Universal just does not believe in the slow burn movie anymore. It's yeah. got to be full of CG monsters and things that jump out and make a loud noise and all that garbage. Mm -hmm. And it's not about character development or, or letting a really creepy thought kind of sit in an audience's mind for a good 15, 20 minutes before you get up to, I mean, you know, it takes time. It takes finesse to, to for a slow burn movie and they just don't believe that it's just all excessiveness. Like you said, mm -hmm. the whipped cream on top of the whipped cream on top of the whipped cream. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're, you're totally right in that aspect. They should just learn to 
come up with a really creepy concept and let that simmer in an audience mind and, and slowly reveal layer by layer that creepy little onion of evil that they've got mm-hmm. and uh, then let loose in that third act for the thing that they've been dreading the whole movie just and then unleash it for 15, 20 minutes of crazy. Oh, my goodness. Just stop. Make it stop already. I can't take no more. You know, that's what I'm, I would hope for if they actually go back down this road again. The other real irony of um, the Mummy movie is there were at least two teases for other monsters. In fact, at one point, I think they show a, a skull with with fangs, so obviously suggesting vampires, and we're going to get the Dracula at some point. But the other one that kind of breaks my heart, because this was always the monster that I hoped they'd circle back on, but they have the arm. In a case, they have the arm of the creature from the Black Lagoon. And right. They came within inches of doing a remake in Universal Effect. The thing that almost got produced was going to be directed by Breck Eisner, Michael Eisner's son. It was a return to the full-blown horror going up the Amazon and dealing with this, this giant creature, and it was supposed to continue the continuity from the black and white films from the 1950s. And as happens... Movies get talked about, movies get planned, movies get developed, and then you have to actually convince the guys in the corner office to pay for them. And in the end, they weren't willing to do that. On the other hand, Disney, you know, here comes Kevin Feige, here comes Joss Whedon, and we're going to make the Avengers movie, and it's only going to cost $220 million. Wow. And Disney doesn't blink. It's like, okay, here's the money. Go make your movie. Luckily, the thing that Kevin had been talking about, this interconnected series of superhero movies that would tell an epic tale, audiences turned out. And that sells $1.5 million worth of tickets in for the summer of 2012. whole bunch of executives at Disney who were like, oh, okay, so we might eventually actually get this $4.2 billion back. But you think about Disney, you think about merchandising, you think about toys, you think about T-shirts, the Disney stores, all that sort of thing. And the hard reality was that Disney had to burn through all of the licensing deals that Marvel had made prior to Disney acquiring them. Mm-hmm. And I'm told that only just now, you know, in like this last two and three years, that Disney's actually been able to make deals with Hasbro and Lego and Hot Wheels, but it's but it's on Disney's terms, kind of using mm-hmm. the clout of, hey, we're Disney. You've got to do better, you know, for us than that. And and like I said, look, nobody's telling you to feel sorry for Disney. Again, Aaron and I will not be passing the hat because you know, <laughs> when you think about the ancillary uh, revenue streams, things like video on demand, Blu-ray, DVD sales, streaming, the the sale of rebroadcast rights to cable outlets. There's all this money coming in, but the weird thing is, again, you you talk with the folks on the accounting side at Disney, and they will still flat out tell you, we haven't made it all back yet. We're still, because of just the way these sorts of finances work, we still haven't made it back yet. And some of that honestly comes on the fact that, that, you know, for example, right now, Avengers Endgame. In fact, as Aaron and I are recording this on the 15th, uh, there have just been pictures released of Robert Downey Jr., Brie Larson, and Jeremy Renner. They've been over in Seoul, Korea today. They're doing an Avengers Endgame fan event. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they traveled halfway around the world, and the idea is to build international excitement for this film. And just four days ago, 
in the UK. Here's Scarlett Johansson. Here's Chris Hemsworth. Here's Paul Rudd doing the exact same thing. They're not flying JetBlue, <laughs> you know? Right, I yeah. Mean, Kevin Feige came along for the trip to Korea. Joe and Anthony Russo were at both of the events, you know, also doing press. But you have to do this sort of work. You have to pay this money up front for publicity for the hope that people are going to think, wow, that looks exciting. Wow, I want to go to the theater or I want to book my seat in advance on Fandango. In my radio past, I worked with a guy who was, had one line in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, he still, you know, he'd say, oh yeah, I still get a check every once in a while for royalties, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the movie's been out for what, 35, 40 years now, and, and mm-hmm. they're still cutting a check to a guy that just had one line. Mm-hmm. What's Steven Spielberg getting still? What is oh. uh, Richard Dreyfus still getting out of that cut? I mean, the studio doesn't, even though they're continuously still making money off of that movie, they're not keeping 100% of it. They still have to give cuts out to people because of SAG and AFTRA rules that state, if you're going to use my likeness, you have to give me 50 cents for every time this movie airs somewhere or whatever. That's absolutely true. And I know we started the segment saying that, you know, explaining that I was going to try to answer Aaron's question. And to be honest, I still don't feel like I did. In fact, for the better part of today, I was trying to answer this question by doing a a deep dive on the history of the original Iron Man and how uh, before that made finally made it to the screen, three different studios, Universal, 20th Century Fox and New Line all made runs at it. In fact, Fox was was going to try to do the version uh, that they, they had one version set up with Nicolas Cage. They had another version set up with Tom Cruise. And Universal got into the Iron Man business because they saw how much money that Warner Brothers had made off of uh, the original Tim Burton Batman movie in 1989. And then 20th Century Fox decides, you know... Maybe we don't want to be in this business, and that was largely because of all the money that Warner Brothers poured down the rat hole for that aborted version of Superman Lives that Tim Burton tried to do, the one with the Kevin Smith script. So I right. mean, I, I love that the story got bookended like that. But again, I wasn't answering Aaron's question, so I threw all that stuff out and did this thing. Story for another time. Where does that leave us, Aaron? Again, I didn't answer your question, right? Well, that's okay, because I thought it was a very absurd question, but the more I thought about it, it was like, it takes a lot of money to run this company and to make these movies and to promote the movies and to create all of this stuff Mm -hmm. on a continual basis. I knew it wasn't just piling up in some Scrooge McDuck vault and piling up, you know, continuously. They have to be shoveling a, a bunch of that gold back out to keep making the stuff and to pay the people for that worked on it after the life of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it just seemed to be like, man, it actually might be really hard to make back that really, really quickly was the whole point. Because then I started thinking about, man, if they spent $60, $70 billion on a Fox acquisition... That's going to take a, a solid minute to earn back. <laughs> Very right? true. Very <laughs> true. Okay. And the upside is, of course, all of this nonsense gives us, Anna and I, more stuff to talk about. So, and, which means future podcasts. And, and speaking of podcasts, Aaron not only appears in the show, he edits the rest of the, the shows we do here 
That's your Jim here podcast network. And that includes uh, Disney Dish with Len Testa, uh, Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. And of course, again, the show you're listening to today, Marvelous Disney. If you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes and rate and recommend our show. Head on over to Bandcamp and subscribe and, and support our efforts here. And we're working on some Bandcamp exclusive shows that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. Thanks for listening, folks. And we'll talk next week. Okay, take care. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.